What's up, everybody? We told you that there would be some more content, even though David is out this week. Uh, we didn't tell you what this content would look like, but uh, we are joined today by a special guest. He is a barrier breaker, being the first one of his family to graduate college, a program raiser, starting the program at Columbia State College. State Community College's women's soccer program and a former NAIA champion. Please welcome Colton Bryant, current assistant coach at Lamar State. Colton, thanks for joining us today. What's up, man? How you doing? Oh, man, I am doing fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I'm sure you. I'm, I'm sure you've done these podcast type interviews before. I know I've seen that you're listed in some magazines you've been quoted in some books this has got to be familiar ground for you oh 100 percent, man i i've done numerous podcasts you know actually a couple of years back one of my goals was to actually get on my first one and now i'm there's i think i'm over like 200 hey that's some experience right there for sure uh we're still in our 100 so we'll be catching up to you soon but uh before we jump into it you want to talk about the women's world cup at all It'll be an interesting one, nonetheless. You know, I've got uh, one of my mentors is actually coaching in it. He's the head coach for Nigeria. Is Randy Waldrop, who's also the head coach for um, University of Pitt. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's really cool to get to see him him go to work. Yeah, I uh, I feel kind of bad referencing this without David because it was something that he wanted to talk about. Uh, did you, by any chance, get to see the? Uh, see France's advertisement for the Women's World Cup. I did not. So what they did was they put together this like highlight reel, and it shows like Griezmann, uh, Coman, Mbappe scoring these absolutely filthy goals. But then at the end of it, it rewinds and it shows what looks like someone editing the video clips. And we come to find out that it's actually the women's national team scoring these absolutely filthy goals. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. Score one for uh, France's advertising. But uh, what do you say we just jump right into some of these questions? We got a lot to talk about and we got about 57 more minutes. Let's do it. So uh, you started uh, college-wise playing soccer at Martin Methodist College, which is now University of Tennessee Southern. Uh, you won championship while there. Uh, while you were also there, though, you started a academy called Premier Football Tech. What was the motivation to start that? Yeah, so I was broke. Um, that was one thing. Um, I looked at my account one day and I had like 20 bucks and I had to pay rent. I don't like asking my parents for much. So that was part one. Um, part two was, you know, when we won the national title, our head coach got a job somewhere else. Um, and then, so I kind of asked him like, okay, well, you know, all these like camps you had me doing, well, you know, like what, what, what comes of those? And, um, well, long story short, he was like, well, no, you've got all the contacts for them. They weren't exclusively ran by the college. They were ran by me. He goes, so, you know, why don't you do something with it? So that's how I kind of turned a lot of what used to be like day camps into like um, basically my own academy. And oh, so I turned awesome. the, like the day camp into like a rolling kind of camp, which turned into the academy. And, and that's kind of how it was born. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, did you have any, did you find any, troubles getting that up and going or 
was it pretty smooth sailing once you got the blueprint figured out? Um, yeah, so at first I had to go around a lot of, like, so I had the, the day camp stuff, which is like, um, you know, if you had it through a high school, it could be that high school. If you had it through, um, I don't know, a, a middle school somewhere, it can be that middle school, or it can just be pieces of the community coming to one event at the, at the place. So what I did was I went around to a lot of different schools, whether it was middle schools, high schools, really all of them, and all the surrounding counties of where we were. And I just kind of was pitching like what I wanted to do and, and how I wanted to do it. And, and then the, at first, you know, a lot of people were skeptical and I had about, I think I only had like two, two people in my very first like couple weeks of it, uh, which was, you know, I was, I mean, I was giving a lot better price than what a lot of people were. I think I was only doing 50 bucks a month for two trainings a week, right. three trainings a week. Sorry, it was three trainings a week, um, which is, you know, unheard of prices and compared to today's you know, I guess soccer market. Um, but you know, I, I started with two kids and it really was in Lincoln County that I got it going. And then, um, as I built, I guess not only the, the Academy brand, but my brand in Lincoln County, where I was now working with the high school as well. Um, not only was I at Martin Methodist doing stuff, but I was working at the high school. I was, and, and I was connected to a club there. I was actually connected to two clubs. There's Lincoln football club. And then there was like, um, Fayetteville Soccer Academy or something like that. And so what I wanted to do was figure out how I could get politics out of the way and basically work with both without there being, you know, any political issues because, you know, a lot of cities have that and clubs have that. And long story short, that's how my academy basically just connected to the two. And so I could work with, with both both clubs via my academy. And so that was kind of how I did it. And, you know, I started with two kids and then once it got going, I think six months later, I had like 300 some kids. Oh dude, that's awesome. Uh, I'm gonna go a little off script here. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Martin Methodist was an NAIA school. So the recruiting regulations were a little bit different as opposed to your standard NCAA school. Uh, and to my understanding that bred a environment that was filled with international students and international soccer players as well uh was there any any helpful tactics that you picked up or hints from people coming to martin experiencing soccer in a different culture or maybe something that was substantiated by your time in argentina with newell's old boys uh, yeah, so I would say that the big thing was is that um, obviously Cleary was a really good coach. Like not a, like on the field, his sessions, like he was an unreal coach. So I got to learn a lot from him. But I think what what really helped me the most was seeing what level of recruiting looked like. So like Cleary, what a lot of people don't realize is he was also the women's coach prior to taking over the men, and he's actually the only coach ever that has won a national title with both sides uh, at the same school. Um, and and so it was what really helped me was like seeing what 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 a good talent was right so you know you could go somewhere like i don't know a lot of places if you ask around like now i'm in the recruiting world so it's funny how many people i speak to and they'll say oh this is the best kid in town and it's like okay and then you go watch the kid and they're you know they're they're subpar and what i mean by that is like you know at martin methodist i got to see what the what the top in the country looks are what the top you know across the world looks like i mean Cleary brought in Melanie Cabral, who also broke all the records at in the NAI prior to Canoe breaking them later on. So, you know, I think a big thing is I got to see what what the top echelon looks like, and 
and you know it's it's been a bittersweet thing because you know it's uh, it's not easy to be number one in the nation and and it's not easy to bring in players that make you number one in the nation and 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 but what's nice is you know now when i look at players it's you know when you see some that are good yeah they're good but there's always that you know that upper tier and i think that martin methodus and, and what cleary did was really help me recognize what that upper tier looked like yeah uh, absolutely i mean not just on the field but i'm sure having uh the per having the right person bringing the right players together culture wise inside the locker room makes all the difference and a lot of people don't think about it because we get so caught up in the climb up to the top that once we seldom recognize that once you get up to the top of the mountain there's only one way to go correct so uh shifting gears a little bit i mentioned earlier uh you were published in some magazines you're published in an international coaching magazine and quoted in a mental performance coaching book uh the first time you saw your name in a separate uh publishing what what was that feeling like it was pretty cool you know because i think the the international magazine happened really young in my career and and it was i guess what's even cooler about it is the 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 session that i when they contacted me, they asked me to like, okay, what are what are some of your favorite sessions, and and like, can we create a diagram for it? And I guess what's cool about it is it's still one of my favorite sessions that I do today. So uh, it's nice to see that even with you know growing with that experience, you still um, you're still happy with what you were putting out. I guess at that age, but no, it was a really really cool. Um, it was a really cool feeling. I, I would say even in the mental performance book was really cool. Um, I mean, I know who the author is. Um, she's now a really good friend of mine and. And so it's really cool to see, I don't know, it's just, you know, I mean, you've known me in college, just to right. see who, how I've grown, it's just cool to see where, you know, things are going. Right. Uh, for that added context, uh, David and I, we lived together in a house in college. We knew each other before, but there was a couple month overlap where uh, Colton was also in that same house. So there was plenty of time to have conversations not just about soccer, but personal growth, mental health, mental health, all these things. And if you take a glance at Colton's Twitter, it's just radiating positivity and mental health stuff. And that's that's a I think it's a great uh, thing that we're seeing kind of start to take shape in the overall sporting world. The emphasis on mental health. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's something that I've always tried to. Um put in the forefront and not a lot of yeah i mean as you know a lot of people maybe read me entirely wrong uh back in the day right Um, i I think i've probably been the most miss i mean even to this day i think i'm still one of the most misunderstood people on the planet um but uh i've always thought that mental health needed to be at the forefront i've always thought that you know caring for the people around you was the cool thing to do not necessarily you know uh, the cool kids growing up were the, the jerks and the bullies and i've always thought that you know caring about those who are around you and building others up was was really what cool kids are and it's really cool to see now that um just now i mean we're in 2023 which blows my mind but in today's world that now finally your people are seeing that you know building others up and 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 caring about those around you is 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 actually what cool people do and i think that's really cool to see yeah i think uh for me personally the moment where i was like oh we're like embracing this now and that's really cool was a it was in hockey because, you know, I'm I'm a hockey guy. As much as I love all other sports, hockey is my uh, one true love. 
Uh, Carey Price, who's a goaltender, a very elite goaltender for the Canadians at one point, uh, stepped away from the team to work on his mental health. Uh, same with Robin Leonard. Uh, these are two former Vesna uh, goaltenders are best goaltender in the league trophy winning goaltenders who stepped away from the game for some time uh, and they weren't cagey about it it was hey we need to take some time away to really reevaluate things ground ourselves get our mental health back in check and for the most part the fans of both teams were very supportive of this where I feel like if this was 10 years ago it would not be this discussion at all it would be Get back in the game, quit being a baby. You're played the, you're you're paid to play. So yeah, I think the big thing is that you know it, it helps that a lot of these famous and and you know championship winning athletes are, are recognizing it, and I think it's because they're recognizing that you know money can only go so far, but you can you can always be like, I guess every off season, every athlete, regardless of who you are, and I mean unless you're just that guy on the multi year contract, you're that guy, you know. Um, I think every athlete is always has that worry to be in traded, and I think that when when they start to realize that every off season is when they really start to realize that on a team you can be replaced, but at home you can't. And so uh, at home, you know, they have the their family they have to deal with their you know their kids, their wives, whatever it may be. And I think that they're 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 starting to realize that you know like you can't be replaced for your kids. You know, you are you are you, and, and but you can on your team. And so then they start to really understand what really matters, and, and that's the stuff at home. Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. I uh I I when it comes to like trading, like yeah, that's that's important on like professional athletes, you know, all leagues outside of soccer really for the most part transferring's a little, you know, different than the trading. It feels like in soccer professionally players really have a greater say in where their career goes, how it shapes and how it takes form. Uh, but it happens, you know, under the professional level, too. Uh, I had a cousin who was playing junior hockey, and he got traded. Uh, we're talking, uh, you know, some a little under college, definitely not professional, but not getting paid to play. Like, they're still, you know, shipping these kids off to other teams. Like, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, when I was younger, I always thought trades were really cool, and I wish they'd happen more because they were exciting it breathe this breath of fresh air into a league but now that i'm getting older you know i start the you realize all the collateral damage when you trade someone or when someone's traded that's family's got to move new school and that i mean that can be very taxing not just on uh the player's family but the mental difficulties that come with these sporadic changes and location uh, could also have an effect on the rest of the family. I would imagine that if your kid is feeling some sort of way about having to move, that in turn is going to, you know, place a uh, have an effect on you, the parent. Hundred percent. I mean, and even on you as a as an individual. I mean, like you know, when when we move as coaches or as athletes, it's nice that we have built-in support system, i.e., our teammates or our staff that we work with right but you know the people around us don't really have that and and you know i mean i'm i'm a culprit of moving i mean i've moved quite a bit in the last few years and and i mean i still where i am now i'm probably one of the most outgoing people you'll ever meet um and i and i still hardly know anyone outside of um outside of work so right. you know when you're moving to a new location i mean just 
just also not knowing anyone around you is difficult. And then on the, on the, on the flip side of that is also trying to get to know people is a lot different in today's world than it was 10 years ago, which is, which is, um, I think a massive factor of the mental health struggles. Um, you know, I think that that's a, that's a very odd thing now. Like, I mean, if you want to look at it from a perspective of imagine going in the past 10 years ago to a coffee shop, it would be normal to meet people that way. Right. Now it's, now it's viewed as, uh, oh my God, who are you if you speak to someone randomly at a coffee shop? You know what I mean? I just think that the way our, our climate is now is significantly different. It makes, it makes life outside of um, maybe your technology and your, your professional world um, much more difficult to maneuver through. Uh, so I imagine that must have had some, some sort of domino effect on recruiting. In a way, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm a real, I'm a much better recruiter because I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> hey, uh, fair, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to get to that uh, later, but let's just jump in right now. Uh, you're a pretty accomplished recruiter. Uh, if it wasn't clear before uh, your days at Columbia State, it is very clear now with what you did to that program. Uh, what led to that skill? Uh, did it just occur naturally? Was that something that you were mentored into? Uh, how did that start? So I think I think what made me really good at it was a lot of failure. And and while I was at Columbia State, I had to I had to fail a lot, and I had to really start to understand who I was and 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 what I believed in. And and you know, one of the main things that I mean, I thought I was really good at recruiting at the start, and I was. I, I mean, we we build the machine but like you know once we won it year one i actually started losing like um i started losing recruits to motlow which was our rival and i was like what in the world is going on like how am i losing these kids now so i had to do some reflecting and when i reflected on it what i realized was was well one um i never mentioned winning before in my recruiting never once and now that we won uh the conference in the second year I was using that, and I started losing kids to Motlow, and I was like, so I, when I when I did my reflection, I was like, okay, why, why am I, what have I changed? And what, what I changed was, was I started talking about winning and, and winning more rather than what the vision was and how we were going to make it happen. And so that really had me check myself and really talk about what the vision is. And, and because people don't really care um, what you do, they care why you do it. And I think that the vision really helped me explain my why more so than than what I was trying to say with the what, which was winning was. And so in my recruiting, what I learned was, is, you know, you really just try and, you just try and be authentic and really tap into what you, what you, what you believe and, and why you believe it. And, and if people want to be a part of that, they will. And if they don't, they won't. And, and I think when you talk about just specifically winning, it's like, oh, now they're afraid that, you know, if you're, if you join a winning program, am I even going to play versus that's not even in their thought the other way around. So, I think that a lot of failure and a lot of having to self-reflect is what led me to where I am now. And I think as the big thing for me is I'm just genuine and authentic and I try and be myself as much as possible. And, you know, that can, as you've seen through life, that can turn people off or turn people on, you know, it's just, it's all about, um, you can only say what you are and what you want to be and, and how you're going to do it. And if people want to join that, they can. And if you, if you spend all your time trying to convince someone, well, it's, a, it's the wrong approach. And I think that's the way in life, whether it's your relationships or everything really is, you can't try and convince someone to be a part of your life. They, you, you just have to be you and, and people will attract to what that is. 
All right, all right. I mean, that, that makes sense. That math does math. Uh, I got to ask, you might not know the answer to this question, but do you uh, know if that authenticity was what was the final deciding factor for any of your players to, you know, jump on the ship? Yeah, so actually one of my, my like, all-stars, um, she was a big Division One transfer who had won, you know, ECNL national titles and stuff, and one of the first things I said to her was, listen, like, I don't, I don't really care where you're from, um, I don't care what you've done, you know, now you're a part of this, and if you if you think you're going to be too big for that, then, then I don't need you here, and I told her that when we first met in person, she had already committed to us on the phone and everything, but when we met in person for media day, before I even put out that she was signed to the team and all that, I just wanted to let her know, like, you know, this is this is who we are and what we're about, and you're not going to be bigger than that, and if you think you are, you know, you don't need to be here, and she she took it really well and then ended up telling me later on during preseason like that's actually why she signed was um she had she had spoke to so many coaches who talked about culture and what they wanted it to be but never met one that was about it and really wanted to work towards it and she said that that day she realized that i wasn't kidding um and and that's what made her actually you know want to be there longer and i thought that was really really cool oh that sounds awesome and that's got to feel great uh for a coach to be uh, to be told that the culture that you had implemented was the deciding factor. Hundred percent, you know, and I think that I think that too many places talk about culture and and family, use those two words as buzzwords. But I, I think the misconception is that that means everything is um, sunshine and rainbows, and that's not the case. I think that it's about having difficult conversations and bridges not be burnt, and there not be any respect lost in those difficult conversations. So. Um, you know, I think that that's something that you have to be like, like I said before, is genuine and authentic about, because if you're not, um, you know, they'll, they'll be able to sniff that out straight away. So yeah, it, it, it is a good, uh, it is a good compliment to hear that, but also, you know, it's, it's something I've always lived by. And so hopefully it's something that every, every player or anyone listening to this, if they ever come across me in the field, will will be able to recognize and respect. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, we talked briefly about Columbia State just in passing. Let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, for those of you, for those who don't know, Columbia State didn't used to have a uh, soccer program until you came in there, built the program brick by brick, and achieved that championship uh, pedigree. Not just once, uh, but repeating. Uh, what? Take us through building a program from the ground up. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to one. Uh, build a culture with the program because when you go to other programs they already have a culture and everything it's already established you can come in and then take the ball that's already rolling and redirect it but with this it was you had to build the ball and then get it rolling yourself yeah so it's, it's funny you say that because i think it's actually like it's, it's it was much easier to start a culture from nothing than it was to change what was already in place at the other places i've been and and the reason is, is like a lot of times when you enter new programs or you're, you're at a new place, it's because, you know, the, the, the last coach was let go, meaning, you know, they didn't really do well. So when you, when you enter a program that, that didn't do well, usually the players have a, a, for lack of better terms, PTSD. At Columbia State, I didn't have that. And it was about like, okay, what is the culture from day one? And, and so it was an interesting one, you know, because you don't have players, you don't have, I didn't have an office or a schedule at the time. And I was told to... That I was approved to start recruiting three months prior to preseason. So, oh, you know, geez. in 
yeah, in three months, you've got your, you're supposed to have your first practice. And in three months and, thir- and 23 days, you're supposed to have your first game. And I didn't have a player in office or, or a schedule, really. So that was an interesting one. And it, and it came to being told no a lot. I mean, my, my goal from day one, and it still is my goal today, is to be the most rejected coach in the country, meaning I, I, I'm going to go for all the top players possible and let them tell me no. And even though I know they're going to say no, you know, one day they may not. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of game-changing type players that I thought would tell me no and didn't. And so, you know, those are those are what kind of evolve your program. So coming from building from scratch, you know, it was tough. We, we held tryouts and we prayed for year one. Um, we proved to be competitive. We broke the school record for the most um, fans at a game with over 375 of our inaugural game, which was really, really cool. Um, yeah, so then from there, it was like just trying to to continue to push and, and grow, and, and so we did that. We, we I mean, I, oddly enough, a couple of my players, I even got from just DMing them on Instagram because I couldn't get a... I couldn't find a number for them or their, their club coach was saying that they're too good to play at that level, and so I had to go find alternate routes to get a hold of them and so that's kind of what i did well you know they say in american college football and in college basketball twitter is the uh that's that's the key to recruiting right there that's 100 percent is in soccer as well that's the key to us you know making that first contact establishing some sort of relationship or uh communication front uh social media is crazy for you know lack of a better it, uh, it connects us all extremely well. 100%. So uh, t- we hit the culture. Uh, let's talk about the roster. So three months to build a roster, that's got to be just a very, uh, a very challenging task to, you know, really take on. And it, it seems like you took it on and beat it pretty successfully. Yeah, I mean, I held trials and prayed. We got some really good players in, and then and then from there, it was just trying to... Then you really had to figure the, the coaching mattered. That's what I think was so cool about my time at Columbia State was the coaching actually mattered versus now, you know. I still think coaching matters, but, I mean, if the better you recruit, the better, the more likely you are to win, right? So right. talent can overcome a coach's lack of competency, but at Columbia State, I didn't have talent, and so the coaching mattered, and... And that's when I really learned that, you know, you can you can be Pep Guardiola in the mind, but if you're not Jurgen Klopp in the soul, there's a bit of a problem. And, and what I mean by that is you can know your X's and O's, but the players don't get, they, they don't care, you know. And unless they know you care about them, they're never going to buy into it. So um, that's actually, I've been, for, for years now, one, one of these days I'll complete it, but I've been writing a book called There's X's and O's and Then There's Coaching because I think that at some stage, we all know the game, but it's, it's what can make everyone fight beyond um what their talent may have um it is actually what, what creates wins so so yeah when building the roster I, it was it was well, i mean we got lucky with some that we held when i was like i said we held trials and prayed and we got we got some good talent but i also had to really be real with what the talent we had and how we played and so you know we kind of built a style from that and then you know moving into the next year it was like okay well here are some really good pieces how can we add on to that like for me we needed more goals so you know i went and got who ended up being the 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 i guess she scored the most goals ever in conference history so went and got her and she she was a big game changer for us along with a lot of others so 
yeah, it, w- it was an interesting process nonetheless. Well, I got to be honest with you, Colton. Uh, I was playing a little game that I didn't tell you about. Uh, you mentioned Jurgen Klopp at the 27-minute mark. I was waiting to see how far we could, uh, you know, make it through the podcast before we saw a glimpse into that uh, Liverpool influence. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, I've seen some of you. I've seen some of your uh, coaching breakdowns. You shared them with me at one point uh, when we were talking about soccer and coaching and tactics. You get pretty in depth on the game plan. Uh, was that what it was like at Martin, or did you kind of wish that it was a little bit more like that at Martin, or where did that come from? Um, I wouldn't say it was like that at Martin. It was. It was really different at Martin. Like Cleary had his his way of going and not only did he have his way i mean we had different types of talent to work with we could play a lot of different ways based on who we put in so we didn't have that at columbia state and that's when i had to really learn like who i was and you know i think a lot of coaches what they what they tend to do is try and do all the things that they used to love that their old coaches did um and the problem with that is is like you have to believe in what you're doing in order for the players to so if you're just mimicking something else you know you got to figure out how to make things your own. And, you know, starting a program at, I mean, I was 22 when I started at 23, I guess, when the first game happened. Um, I was, you know, that's, I, I really had to learn. I had to learn a lot. And I had to figure out, like, what, why was I coaching the way I was? And, you know, how, how do I see the game? And I actually learned a lot of that just by playing FIFA, to be completely honest. Um and then from there, it was just about trying to really figure out how am I going to implement it and what ways am I going to do that. And so, you know, being a young coach at a, a young head coach at that, where I had to really live and die by my own sword was I really needed to really, I guess, identify who I was as a coach and how I wanted to play. And and so, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the in-depth stuff just came from my own, my own um, sitting there on my own trying to figure all those questions out. Right, right. No, absolutely. Uh, my coaching history is significantly uh, smaller than yours. But uh, to something that I, I don't want to say picked up on and implemented, but an idea I had for if I was in a position was a lot of these uh, sport video games can be a very useful tool for coaches in terms of trying out new tactics, uh, formations, how they want it to progress. Uh, I know for me in hockey, I was able to play around with the uh, play builder and control, okay, I want this player to transition to here at this time, this player over here, and then I could basically hit play and watch it play out. Were you able to do something similar w- to that with FIFA, or was it just playing the game and then you picked up on some things, not passively, but things that just kind of hit you out of nowhere? Yeah, no, I definitely was able to use it. And um, it's funny you ask that. Like this year, we were implementing some different type of like, um, not pattern play, but patterns play. So I'm not telling them that if you go here and here, but showing them that there's, if you pass it to a further player and you have someone under you, well, then it's like a, it's a high and low type pattern. And, and we talk about connecting diamonds and triangles. So long story short, what I did one day was we film all of our training. I did this this year is we film all of our training. So I clipped out a lot of the things that we did from training, basically what we did at the start, which was the pattern itself. And then how we added opposition to the pattern, blah, 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 blah. 
right? And then and I did that all the way up into the final bit where we just played. Well, then I what I what I then did was I went and played FIFA and I clipped a lot of things. So it was like we we played a. My favorite FIFA formation was a diamond. It just so happened that we played a diamond, four four two diamond this year. So I did a uh, building out of the back with a diamond on FIFA. I did a um, transition to defense, transition to attack. I did a lot of different things, and I uh, clipped the FIFA stuff and I put that into the video. So I showed the girls like, okay, here is our training. Here are the principles we worked on. And then what I wanted to do was try and help them see kind of what I saw. And the best way to do that was to play FIFA and for them to physically be able to see what I'm seeing. And so I showed them that. And then they were like, oh, wow. So this is why you use this is because if we do this, then now we can we can transition into that part of the field quicker. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly why. So I use FIFA as not only a thing for me to see, but also for them to see the kind of what's going on in the mind of Colton. Okay, okay. So uh, I feel like the diamond formation uh, was very popular 10 years ago, but I feel like uh, I'm seeing less and less teams use it, at least on a professional scale. Do you think that's just trying to be the next one to find the new formation that breaks the game wide open? Or do you think that what, why do you stick with the diamond? Um, so I would say that in the, like, you know, what's crazy is I usually, I usually coach in a four, three, three with principles from the diamond, but it just so happened that with this year, this, this team works best in the diamond. But, you know, I think what happens is, is there's a lot of, um, the way a lot of people work is they, they, they coach principles, right? And, I, and that means that the, the formation itself should matter as much, but from a formation standpoint, you're actually going to start seeing more three in the back type stuff. Um, it's because people think they want to throw a lot of numbers forward. Um, and, and I understand that. The more numbers you throw forward, then, then likely you're going to have more. Sorry, my dog's barking. Oh, you're good, man. Then um, likely you're going to have you know more numbers in the box. But statistically speaking, if you watch, well, if I watched our games back, if you took corners out of the, the scenario, then there were very few times we scored goals where there were more than two players in the box. So it wasn't for me. It's never been about throwing numbers forward. It's been about... Um, I've always said my, my philosophy is sort of like how Floyd Mayweather fights, is I never want to get hit, and then when I do, I want to knock you out. So, um, And I think it kind of shows in, in the, the results that we get from season to season. I mean, at Columbia State, my last year was like, I think it was like 28 goals scored and four against. Um, it just shows that I don't like conceding. I mean, and this year at Lamar, we were number two in the nation for total goals conceded as we only conceded eight goals on the season. So I'm very big on not getting hit, and I, I like having protection. And I'm, I'm also big on, you know, if you have if you have all your numbers forward, then all the, the opposition, their defense is all going to be back. But if you have most of your numbers towards you, towards your, your goal, then the opposition is going to high press you. And then if they do that, well, then the space is now behind them. So Right, so that know, just breaks open a counterattack. Exactly. So if you can possess in your half and they're gonna come towards you well now that the space behind is in and that's why i always recruit massive speed up top is because you know i am confident in being able to keep the ball um in my own zone because we have more numbers but i'm also confident being able to play that final ball where we can run past you and score awesome awesome so i gotta you mentioned briefly uh about how great uh that columbia state program turned into we talked about the first year, 
So you get that first year done. Uh, it's on the books. There, It felt like there was just this drastic, almost exponential rise following that first season. Was that just because you had more time to really go out and take your time with recruiting? Or was there something else to it? Uh, I think a little, a little bit of all of it. I think that I was able to identify what it meant to be good, meaning like I didn't just see what it would take to win our conference. I got to see... I mean, on my second year, we played the number one team in the nation and lost 8-0. It was the most fun I've ever had on the sideline. <laughs> um, and and it was, it, it's funny saying that, but, like, it really was. Like, I got to see, like, okay, that, that right there is what the top team looks like. And, and so, my, like, we did, and not to mention, I thought we did pretty good that game. I mean, we were down 8-0, but from a, from a team perspective, we grew a lot in that game alone. And from a coach perspective, I grew a lot in that game alone. And and so then what happened was, is once you identify what some of the top teams look like and what, what it takes to be competitive in your conference, um, that's what we did. So in year two, we won the conference, but we weren't necessarily recognized on a national level. Um, and, and rightfully so, we weren't good enough yet. But year three, um, we were able to be a lot more intentional about the type of player we wanted to bring in and and so we did that and i mean that that got us recognized on a national level i think at one stage we were 14 in the country and the only reason we lost in the national tournament was a pass back on a bad field so we we played it from our fullback to our keeper and unfortunately it bounced over her foot and went in the goal that's how we lost the game oh that's a tough break yeah but from uh, from an evolution standpoint it was really just trying to you know be better than what we were and i once i saw what it took to win the conference that that i mean you i could sustain that the next piece was what was it going to take to win nationals and that's that's what we were heading for and i think had had you know push not came to shove like it ended up doing i think we would have won nationals that that fourth year yeah shoot uh so you were at columbia state you departed uh which was a juco school now you're d1 how is the recruiting process different between JUCO and D1? Um, you know, it's, it was a lot easier at, at, at it's a lot easier at Division One than it was at JUCO. At JUCO, it was like I wanted the same caliber level of players. I just didn't have Division One behind me. So, right. Um, so now it's like I have that, and now we're I mean we're a top thirty program, so it's it's much easier to recruit now. Now it's just about like you know we're replacing special players with special players, which you know, special players are not always hard, are not always easy to find. So, you know, it's, it's uncovering those special players. And then when you do also getting them, which is not, not always the easiest thing, but um, you can get the attention of more special players now than you could before. Um, but also like on the flip side of that is that division one, we're a four year institution. So, you know, you have four recruiting classes versus at JUCO, you have two and every year you lose half your team at JUCO. So at JUCO, it was actually harder because you had to bring in, you know, 15 kids a class versus now, you know, if I brought in six, that's, that's good enough. Okay. That makes sense. That, that does, that does track indeed. Uh, so, uh, you also spent time with the Nashville rhythm and the, uh, WPSL. So we've got Juco, we've got D1 and we've got WPSL. Uh, how is the game different from each of those levels? Because I know, for instance, in college football, uh, the game looks very different just going across divisions, not D1, D2, D3, but divisions within D1. 
Uh, is for women's soccer, is it more or less the same sport with, uh, well, not same sport, but the same uh, way of play, just with better players the further up you go? Or is it does it look different? Are there different tactics? Yeah. Uh, I think I think in the women's side specifically, it's um, like I would say we are a better soccer team in terms of IQ and in terms of technical ability here at Lamar than a lot of Power Five schools. But I think a lot of Power Five schools are a lot more physically enabled than we are. So, for example, when we played LSU in the national tournament, it was a great game, all in all. Like I, I thought it was an unreal game. In the end. The, the ultimate decider was them going into a 3-5-2 system and being able to out-athlete us to that. And they were able to – we did a lot of wing-back trapping, so we were trying to make sure their fullbacks – we trapped their fullbacks, and every time they played their fullback, we, we kind of – that was our cue. And what they did was in the second half, they went 3-5-2, and they put their wing-backs all the way in our half. And so every time we tried to trap outside, it was in our half, and that, that created a problem because then they were able to just – you know, I mean, they really just ran us to death. They were able to play long to their wingbacks, and that's how they beat us. So I would say that it wasn't a soccer issue as much as it was an athleticism issue. I mean, so no, I that makes the, sense. At the higher level, they're just more athletic. Yeah, no, that that makes sense for sure. Uh, three five two feels kind of bold, though, in a, in a game that, you know, with that much on the line. No, nah, not when you have the athletes they have, because, I mean, they could just dump it long, and we... You know, we, we could deal with it, but they could. There were more times we couldn't deal with it than they could, if that makes any sense. So, right. You know, their, their wingbacks got tired and were dying. They just put two in that were just as athletic versus we couldn't substitute in the same caliber of athlete that they could. And so, you know, down the stretch, they were just able to beat us, you know, through, through athleticism alone. So uh, if you – this might be an unfair question to ask, and let me know if it is. Uh, if you could just boop right back uh, in time, knowing what you know now, uh, what would you do to try and counteract that? Or would you just have to hope for some better breaks? Um, I'd do exactly what we did in this recruiting class, is bring in a much more athletic fullback. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Match so, their pace a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, we. I think our, one of our strikers is probably one of the fastest women in the nation, and that's no exaggeration. Um, I think that's 100 percent true. And I think we got a fullback. Oh, sorry. I think we got a fullback that came in that um, is probably able to match her pace. In fact, her dad is um, the wide receivers coach for the Baltimore Ravens. Keith oh, Williams that's is cool. Name. Yeah. So we brought in Keith Williams' daughter, who's actually like she's rapid, and she 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 was a transfer from Jacksonville University. And after watching her film, like she was unreal against Liberty in their conference finals, and and Liberty are a very strong team, so um, we brought her in, and I think that now if they play down that side, I think we are able to stop her. Oh, that's that's awesome. Uh, have you met or talked to any parents that were just, like, surprisingly... I don't want to say surprisingly cool because that sounds bad, but, uh, like, for instance, this girl, her dad is a coach in the NFL. Uh, any other, like... Once you get there in front of them, you're like, oh, uh, this is this per- this guy's a guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been out recruiting as well and, and you know, was watching a game. And I look on the sideline and there's Tiger Woods. And it's like, oh, wow, his daughter plays for this club. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, I mean, that happens That happens more often than not, believe it or not. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. But, like, 
there's also the flip side of that where it's like your players sometimes know people that you don't think like we have a girl that played for Barcelona and at Barcelona and La Masia they they all train in the same areas she could be she at one stage could have been in there getting her ankle wrapped and Messi walked through oh that had to be a sick experience if yeah, something so like to them say that to us is crazy but also like we just brought in a, this is hilarious we just brought in a Ghanaian national team player in January right Right, and we were looking at her, one of our friends um, to also bring, and I was watching the the highlights, and it was from a a prior Youth World Cup, and it was so funny. I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm like, "Oh my God, is that Kaiza?" And watching this highlight video, not only was the Ghanaian girl we brought in in the video, her friend in the video, but one of our current center backs was in the video getting attacked. Oh, how'd she do? Well, she lost three zero, but she's probably our best defender. Hey, hey, well, growth like, is a, growth is important. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's crazy. It's like, you know, when, I mean, we're watching a Youth World Cup game, like highlights from a Youth World Cup game. And, and you know, not two of my current players are in the video, but also when I'm recruiting. And it's just, it's kind of crazy just to look at. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that's got to be validating to some degree. Like, we're going after players of this <laughs> caliber. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I mean, our goalkeeper now is, is one of the, I mean, she's top five in the nation, but I would say that she's, I mean, she was Dutch national team. So, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the level that we're working with here. Yeah. So I got two more questions for you and then I can let you get back to your Friday night. But uh, question number one, uh, you talked about, you know, you're at Lamar State now. You talked about how good of a season it was last year, all this, all these things, uh, what heights are you looking to accomplish this year? Yeah, I mean, we, we want to win again. Like, we were 15-2-2 last year, our second loss only being at the national tournament. So we only lost one game in regular season. Um, we, we, we kind of want to do that again, you know. We have a tough schedule. And at one stage, we were number 12 in RPI, meaning so a lot of people don't understand what RPI is. It's uh, You play a non-conference schedule at first, and so for us, we stack our non-conference schedule, make it a little bit harder, and so your RPI is based off of your strength of schedule. Last year, at one stage, we were number 12 in the nation in RPI, meaning we beat teams that we probably shouldn't have, and it put us up there. So um, we want to do that again, and we have another tough schedule this year. I mean, we even have Xavier coming to play us, which is a massive one. They're They're a top team in the Big East, and... And I mean, they beat Tennessee at the national tournament last year. Oh, geez. So we, you know, we want to kind of, we want to kind of try and repeat that and see what we can do. And and that's kind of the goal is just to continue that that ride. I think we're actually going to be better this year than we were last year. So. Okay. Okay. Uh, I lied. I have an additional question. Uh, please forgive yep. me. But uh, what would you say the state of not just women's uh, soccer but women's sport? you know going forward uh, in our country is are you optimistic about it uh not very much, very very much? much like, i think from a from a scholarshiping standpoint in terms of collegiate athletics everything's there i think nil opportunities are there um i think your social media really influences nil opportunities as it should probably i mean you know name image likeness matters for these companies that are one to to pay for you um but on the flip side of that i mean even on the pro level i think it's it's growing tremendously in a lot of different ways um i think that uh women influence in general even more women coaches are in the are coming into the fold which i think is a good thing um and i think that you know in terms of just how things are moving in general is is the positive i mean it's definitely not a negative 
So uh, I think it's only going to continue to grow. Did, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, I believe it's official now. If not, I believe it's going to be made official soon. It appears that the Forest Green Rovers in the e EFL, English football system, uh, appointed a woman coach. Uh, head coach, and she's going to be the first uh, co woman's coach in the English uh, male soccer division, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that that's good, you know, and I think the big thing that we have to uh, we have to make sure we do as a, and I'm not saying they didn't do this. I think she's probably really, really good, which is probably why she got the job, um, especially at the pro level. I just think we need to make sure that the right people are getting jobs regardless of gender. Um, you know, I don't think that you, I mean, we, we don't, we don't applaud people that are um we don't applaud males for getting jobs and and you know i think it's great that a female got one but i think at some stage we have to stop looking at gender and really really focus on the the, the job at hand and competency and i think that it's while it's really cool that she's one of the first females to do it or the first female you know i think at the end of the day it's i think it's cool that she's doing it and i think that whoever she is whatever her name is that's who we should applaud not necessarily just because she's female okay okay absolutely great point uh Last question I got for you today. Uh, I don't know how many people know about this, but uh, you used to be a professional eSport athlete before <laughs> eSports were really a thing. Uh, you, you were a professional Counter-Strike player. Yeah. What, what was that like? <laughs> you know, that was pretty cool because, you know, in high school I needed some money. And, you know, my I had a, I had a family member that he, he had done it and he I grew up with him, so what got me into it and you know now looking back he's like wow this is what it could have been i'm probably in the wrong profession i should have stayed in that but <laughs> but no and the, but looking back at it, it was pretty cool you know and and also it gives me a level of it's kind of funny because you know a lot of people don't see that gaming side of me um they don't even know it exists and i would say i'm, I'm pretty good at your your fps shooters now what do you think? I played with you before. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I no, you see, Colton, I would describe myself as pretty good. Uh, until I play with you and I get your lobbies, and then I get, I look like uh, I just got the game two weeks ago and don't know how to shoot. Like it's, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I, I think I'm crimson now in Call of Duty. Shoo, that's pretty high up there. So, uh, you talked about you're pretty filthy at at first-person shooters uh you mentioned looking you know at what it is now uh do you see a future at any point where you maybe lean back into that you know it's a good question I've, I've i've thought about that a bit and i don't see it because of um there's also a stigma in esports in today's world where if you're if you're above 26 you're too old yeah yeah i mean i think now there's still one in in the Call of Duty scene who is Clayster, who's still a part of it. I think he's like 30 right now. But yeah. like, there's just that stigma. And, but there's also that there, there's just a different level of passion, right? And and it, the truth is, is I could go out recruit and coach all day every day and not get tired of it. But I get tired of Call of Duty after playing it too much. I'm so, reasonably so. Uh, I've been experiencing that more and more. I feel as the years go by with uh, video games. Well, also, like, when you, it also depends on the game. I mean, like, when you look at Counter-Strike, Counter-Strike's a game that doesn't change a lot, so that's one, like, you know, I, I would have to do a lot of catching up to be a part of something like that, but 
from a from a pro standpoint, like it's the same game versus like if you watch Call of Duty pros, they have to they have to adapt to a new game every year. That's kind of crazy. No, absolutely different mechanics. I mean, can you imagine uh, the sport of soccer changing as drastically year by year that some of these esport games do? Yeah, and you know, like I also wouldn't like the life. Of, I mean, I would like the life of a pro to some degree, but also like. You know, like right now they're in something called roster mania where in esports they change rosters every freaking game and it's crazy. Like if you're a part of, I don't know, Optic Texas, well then you're going to live in Texas and you're going to, you know, at the end of the year, I mean, there were two people that were brought on mid-season for Optic Texas and and they got cut. So it's like they don't even know where they're going to be next. And rumors are they're going to, one of them's going to end up in LA, but it's like, that would suck. Yeah, there's not, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of security there. And, uh, There's not, you know, their their league minimum is sixty k, so it's like that's not I that much. I don't know that that includes benefits. Yeah, that's not that much to be a uh, esport athlete on a like professionally speaking. No, because I mean, if they don't give you benefits, you're looking at you're taking home forty five, and then depending on where you live, like Texas, Texas would be a good place because um, no state income tax. But if you play for an LA team, well cool you live in la but you're also having to pay the la tax yeah uh, paying living in la uh paying the la tax on 60 total thousand dollars a year that's not what you take home uh that that can't be good for you know comparing with the cost of living i'd imagine those orgs can't i'd imagine that the, the la orgs can't pay 60 i bet they have to pay more yeah, it, it, uh, that, it doesn't sound feasible for the athletes if they're only unless paying they, 60. Unless they, I mean, they could pay 60 if they owned a house that all the athletes had to live in. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that would be good for an eSport team, you know, get really good 100%. Wi-Fi. Uh, but then that also goes into your quality of life, right? Like, right. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 28. At some stage, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get a girlfriend and be married. So, you oh, know, what yeah. In your 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 professional career versus as a professional athlete, like traditional sports or professional coach, you have that opportunity and you can do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. But uh, listen, Colton, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, kind of bailing me out a little bit in terms of content. Uh, super appreciate you. And I tell you what, uh, regardless of if we stay this size or if we catch some serious momentum and balloon up to. A seven-figure audience. When your bush get bush, when your book gets published, you have a open invitation to come on the pod, plug it up, and again, thank you so much for coming on, man. No problem, dude. Happy to do it. Make sure you share it on all platforms so I can also share it. Awesome, awesome. I'll be doing that instantly. I'll definitely make sure to get that to where you can also plug it out. Again, thank you so much, man. I'll uh, probably call you back here soon. Uh, I'm going to wrap up this, get it nice and polished. And again, thank you so much, man. No problem, dude. All right, bye. All right, uh, so one more time, a big thank you to Colton Bryant, assistant coach at Lamar State's women's soccer program. Uh, This was our first interview process, our interview episode, if you will. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too weird just hearing me for an hour. Uh, no David at all. Uh, there might be another episode coming down the pipeline uh, the day after this one gets posted. And uh, listen, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm 
just here so we don't get fined. <laughs> 